since I've been up here, like on the stage, and so thank you for having me back, um, stage as it is. Anybody get a bookmark? If anybody didn't, I'm just going to, okay, here. There you go, harps. And we got our, our olders with us in the gathering. Hello, young women. Um, you guys can hand that out. I want to share a quick story about two years ago. Two years ago, my wife were adjusting with kids schooling, kind of coming out of COVID, but still being in it. It was fall, and we were in a flurry of just working from home, teaching from home, um, and moving kids around to different sports, and it was soccer season. My son, Mac, was seven years old at the time, and it was uh, my duty to take him to practice. And the issue with taking the practice is that his practice toggled between two fields, one being the elementary field and the other being the middle school field. And I was certain that I was supposed to drop him off at the elementary field. And if you know me and my parenting styles, I'm a pretty high attachment kind of guy, but I also like to give my kids freedom. And so I remember just being in the midst of my own busyness and trying to peel myself away from my computer to take him to his practice. And so I dropped him off in the elementary and I was like, hey dude, you know where to go, right? He's like, yeah, I know where to go. I was like, you got this? I got this. So he goes to practice and he goes up on his own. I go home, jump right back into emails, texts, message, writing, etc. And I get a call about 55 minutes later uh, from a woman. She's like, hey, <clears throat> is your son named Mac? And I was like, yeah, yeah. Yeah, he's been sitting here on the field by himself for the last hour. Uh, yeah, he, I, I didn't want to interrupt him. I, I'm watching my own kids practice, but I saw him, and then eventually I just kept watching him until a sniffle came out, and he started crying. Oh, yes. Yeah, it's a hard one. It'll get you. Uh, it's brilliant that he knew my number, but it was a moment where I jumped up in a rush of urgency, obviously guilt and some shame, deep, deep sadness as I booked back to the field. And yeah, when he got me, he was so glad to reconnect, so glad to reconnect, but also overwhelmed with tears, overwhelmed with tears. It's a hard story for me. Whew. And uh, I knew it was a moment, an occasion that would be imprinted into his conscience and even subconscious. Just think about that, 45 minutes of just sitting there, like not knowing where to be, where to go. And how do I know that? Is it parents' intuition? Yes. Is it also the fact that I said, hey, Mac, what's a moment this week where I breached trust with you? What's a moment in your life? He's like, oh, yeah, that moment in the field. <laughs> and we've, like, talked it. We've, like, tried to walk through it and um, trying to reparent him, asking for forgiveness and grace, which is a great practice as a parent. But I think that idea, that question of breaching trust leads me to a question that we have today is maybe how have you had a breach of trust with someone who was called to love or shepherd or guide you in your life? How, is you, how have you had, had a breach of trust with someone who is called to love, guide, and shepherd you? Now, the first question should be easier. The second question is a deeper question. It takes a lot of time to consider. And if you don't know the answer right away, that's totally okay. I think even considering the first question is helpful. Uh, and how has that breach of trust informed the way that you, you maybe see yourself? Like maybe Max saw himself as like somebody who's like, easily forgotten. Uh, maybe sees the world around you, or God. Again, the first question, easier than the second one. The second one requires a lot of time, a lot of time. But, like, th that leads us into our conversation as we talk about adulting. And my main hypothesis today 
is that children trust until they're given a reason not to. Children have a tendency to trust until they're given a reason not to. It's our natural intuition as children and children of God, for that matter. This isn't just about being seven years old. This is about being 37 years old or 47 years old, if you're me, 27. Uh, Particularly as children of God, early in our walk, we, we, we have a tendency to trust and vulnerably so, because trust is vulnerable. And so many, so many of us, when we think of this first question, we'll think about what psychology calls our family of origin, our caretakers, our parents, sometimes grandparents, aunts and uncles. Uh, the, the acronym is FOO. You might think of your FOO, and that's highly important, probably the most important when you think about different ways in which you will were designed to be guide and shepherd and, and subsequently let down. But there are other areas of your life, other guides in your life that may have breached trust with you. There's uh, your school, your schools of origin. There's your coup, your culture of origin, different messages you received, your boo, your bosses or bullies of origin, your crew, close relationships of origin, and of course, your poo, your pastors or pulpits of origin. Different ways in which you have been let down. I might let you down today. Uh, I can go on, but I, th- I just want to repeat that children ha- trust until they're given a reason not to. Children and children of God. Children of God. We all have trust issues. We all long to belong, but also carry with us these pains which lead to trust issues. In our conversation today, I just want to, as we walk through the scriptures, I want to talk about two barriers to trust. Two ways in which we, we learn not to trust, and then hopefully a way back. It's going to be an imperfect conversation, so I ask that you pray for me. I just sense like a conversation to lean into some cultural conversations too. So God, have mercy on us. Remind us of your kindness, how much you love us, you save us. And God, would you speak, and anything that I say that isn't from you, God, do your work, Holy Spirit, to erase that. But at the same time, Jesus, with the words of my mouth and a meditation my heart be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Yeah, Grant talked about it really well, this idea of adulting and the paradox that as we mature, as we mature in our faith, we're we're called to put off these childish ways, but also take on these childlike ways. I think an example of that is I was at a wedding last night with Courtney, and we danced it up like nerds. And we just let ourselves go. And it was in, in that moment, there was like a deepening intimacy that happened as we were deep. It's been a while since we danced like that. I, I'll say all that, but I think if I go to the scriptures, we're rooting this in the book of Ephesians. And there's a bookmark I gave you because uh, some of these conversations, we may not delve as deep as you would like. And so I wanted to provide that bookmark for you so that you can understand the book that we're in. I will give some commentary on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. In fact, I want to name just one scripture that helps us understand our series. Paul says in Ephesians 4, this is at the center of the book, which is highly important, then we will no longer be infants tossed and forth by the waves, blown in here and there by every wind of teaching, and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love. Everybody say truth in love. We will grow and become in every respect the mature body of him who is ahead, that is Christ. So the series is called to put off our childish ways by also owning our childlike ways. As Larry spoke uh, two weeks ago, 
owning the fact that God chooses us. Uh, before the creation of the world, he thought of us to be holy and blameless. This means to be innocent. In his sight, God's sight, in love, he loves us. He predestined us to sonship. That term just means that we're given primary position in God's family. That's an ancient Greco-Roman uh, term. In accordance with his pleasure and will, like God takes pleasure in you. Like that you, what's God's will? You are. And you, you, you're walking with God. And that's why I gave that bookmark. Ephesians is one of those books that is so succinct and at the same time theologically rich. It's like one of those books where they use an analogy where like gnats can swim, like gnats, gnats, and elephants can drown. You could spend months just plumbing the depths of just one or two of the verses there, and here we're going to go through it pretty quickly. The one most commentators believe that Ephesians is set up in two parts, and there's the Bible Project video, I'm not going to go through that today, but they help illustrate the two parts. I've heard it said in different ways. There's really the gospel story and how that informs our collective identity that we share amongst the diversity within us that we celebrate, that we're called together, all people groups to come together in the gospel, to have this identity as daughters and sons. And the second part is really about our continued story with our shared responsibilities as this new humanity together, about unity, not uniformity, but we are called together to be God's new people. And uh, were you guys, anybody here when Scott and Lindsay preached with the Psalm 23 and they talked about the sandwich? It's a really good illustration. Ephesians is set up similar to other scriptures where it's a chiasm, which is a literary device which shows different ideas and themes and then repeats those themes in an inverted way. So that's like a mirror. It's like a mirror. And the key is that the meat is in the middle. So you got your bread, your bread, and then you got like your oil and vinegar and your Dijon. I'm from the East Coast, sandwiches are a big deal. You got your spinach, and then your lettuce, your greens, then you got your hot peppers, and then your bell peppers are sweet. Then you got your two cheeses, I'm a provolone and cheddar guy, and then the meat. Make sense? And the meat is the focus. And two things that come up within Ephesians is love and power. Love and power, and specifically, as Huey Lewis in the news says, that's the power of love. Duh, duh, no. Again, I would check out the Bible Project video. That is a good bookmark for you. Two themes that we've already talked about in the midst of this series is that we are loved. That we are loved. Children are taught their value by being valued, not by having to prove their value. That we are loved. Before all things, you're loved. Before all things, you are loved. The second one we talked about was play which may feel like a bit of a derivation from the scripture, but we aligned it within a conversation of discernment, and we played on the beach last week. Why is play important? Why is rest important? Why is pausing to pray important? Because it surrenders our control. And when we surrender our control, the eyes of our heart are illuminated. They're enlightened so that we can see and hear what the Spirit's up to, so that we can live a life of saying, okay, I don't want to be in control. I'm going to give up. Having control, play is a great place to do that. If you truly play, it's a great place to learn to walk in the world without control so that God can lead us. And it's, according to play, I was, I was challenged to quote-unquote mix it up this summer with this series. So I'm like, I'm doing my best to do that. Our leadership team was like, yeah, let's do some fun stuff. Meanwhile, let's probe the depths of Scripture. So it's a both-and. Let's, let's be childlike 
but also learn to put off our childishness. So I wanted to give you a roadmap of what we're doing this summer in our adulting series. Again, last, the, two weeks ago we talked about dancing as God's beloved. Last week we talked about playing as God leads. Today we're talking about trust as we commune together. Next week is wonder as we see one another. And I hope there's going to be some prompts there. The following week we're going to be talking about prayer. And I, I want our kids to pray for us. That's what I'm really looking forward to. And even creating space for us to intercede with one another. I love that picture that Grant had where he was being prayed for. That was a powerful time. I could talk a lot but I believe our prayer is better than me speaking. Uh, we're going to give a commentary on the church today and how we are purpose as a church. We're going to talk about our spiritual offices as we discern our callings. There's a scripture that talks about being apostle, prophets, evangelists, teachers, and pastors. And uh, we're going to be on the beach where different people are going to lead out breakouts on that. Uh, I have a connection dinner in my house specifically focused in, on discipleship in the fall that I want everybody to come to. Food will be there, of course. We'll have a conversation on marriages with a Q&A. We're going to connect with family and enrichment on what's breaking down the family a bit, and I would say it's the screens. Uh, it's going to be enrichment. We're going to sing some songs with an evening gathering, a prayer and worship night at the Faulkner Farm. There won't be church that day. There will be church that night. Uh, we're going to have a panel about what it means to be the larger extended family, and then we're going to talk about spiritual warfare standing, and then we go to Catalina. So there's different things happening kind of fun. I think we want to get back to the conversation today is what are the two major ways that trust is breached? Two major ways. There could be other ways. This is what I sense from the scriptures today. Uh, but before we get into it, I want to read Paul's opening pair in Ephesians 1, which kind of sets some of the context and underlying principalities, or principles really, which point to principalities uh, and, and for our conversation today. So, this is going to set some context. Ephesians 1, verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all of God's people, you being Ephesus, this church in Ephesus, which is this Gentile audience, I, Paul, have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that God of the Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance as his holy people, and, this is huge, his incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is the same as the mighty strength he exerted when he raised Christ from the dead and seated him up at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion. And every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be the head over everything in the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen that prayer. That's a prayer. Uh, as I mentioned, power, love, big themes. I wanted to hone in this idea of power, and particularly principalities, because Paul's audience is, is uh, living in Ephesus, and Ephesus was a commercial and political center under high imperial influence, and power was a huge focus for those people. There was power over people, power for wealth, there was power from governing authorities and magistrates that they experienced and that they wanted, in fact, 
there was power was one of the key themes of their religious centers as well. It's a highly religious center surrounded by the pantheon of gods in those times. If you know anything about ancient Greco-Roman gods, Zeus, all those things. A huge god was Artemis, which was this fertility cult that also mixed pleasure because there's power and pleasure, there's power, everything. And people would appease these gods in order to have influence, in order to have wealth, health. Power was a huge theme. And what Paul wants to make clear in this passage is that the power of Christ, again, reigns over all. We amen that. But he's also making clear that there are spiritual influences that undergird these powers. There are demonic principalities, both that personally tempt individuals, as well as, and this is huge, collectively convince cultures. Cultural powers that drive people, people groups and even nations, by and large. Let's continue reading. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, he says, As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which he used to live when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the, saving, the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. Again, this is deeply theological, but this is one of those critically important passages that outlines essentially what we've talked in the past, the three modes of evil. One is this cravings of the flesh, it's our own sinful desires, our actions, both that we commit, as well as those actions that we fail to commit to help and love and serve God and others. There's that one aspect of it. There's also mention of the ruler of the air, which talks about the enemy of God, the devil, the adversary, Satan, and his minions. But we can't miss this other one, this ways of the world, which is illustrating these powers, these principalities, these collective evils, which left unchecked become systemic principalities, cultural prides that become collective influences. And as we lean into this conversation, these two major barriers, I want to take note of one thing. Is Paul says, he uses these second-person plural pronouns. He says, as for you, as compared to we. I just want to notice that, because it actually leads us to our, our first barrier to trust. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. And later says, all of us. Now he uses, like, first-person language. Lived among them at one time. Like the rest, we were deserving of wrath. What's going on as he does this you-we talk? That's the question. Well, the you is addressing the Gentiles, which essentially are non-Jews. This is Paul's Gentile audience. And the we are reflecting on the Jewish people. How do I know that? Because the next section jumps into that conversation. And it's setting it up very well. And this distinction between you and we actually brings up the first collective principality that informs the way in which we breach trust with one another. And is this, it's, it's somewhat of the culture that influenced the Jews at the time, and that was overprotection, which led to exclusivity. What are the ways that we breach trust with another, with one another? Is that we, as guides, overprotect. We don't let people go out. We don't let people into the world because we are scared of the world. One of the themes of Ephesians is that 
God put unto effect everything to bring unity to all things in Christ. One of the major callings of the people of Israel is to go be a nation that blessed other nations. They were called to be a light, as it says in Isaiah 42 and 49, to the Gentiles. But instead of doing that, most, not all, most of the uh, people of Israel hid their light under a bowl uh, because they were afraid of what was out there, of how that would influence them. The world out there was viewed as evil, generally, and there was no, no exploration, no adventure, and no purpose other than their self-preservation. And when we live this way, when we have a fear of the world out there, when we begin to insulate, we will slowly distrust that which we have never encountered. Does that make sense? When we overprotect, we will trust which we never encountered. The stingrays in the ocean are way too dangerous now to my kids. They didn't encounter it, I did, and so they're scared of the ocean. Those people are different from us, so don't talk to them. Uh, we're going to talk about ministry in Mexico in November. Some people think Mexico's way too dangerous. Uh, Democrats are never to be trusted. Republicans are never to be trusted. We can't expose ourselves or our kids to our non-Christian neighbors. That is a principality of overprotection. And we just, I want to acknowledge that. And we've acknowledged that. We've been in Amos and James, which are prophetic books, that have called us to go out, to be in the world but not of the world, um, to be for the world as God is for the world, and love the world in Christ, not compromising who we are by no means, but standing uh, outside of our comfort zone. What's helpful and needed as we seek to go out, because our, our design is longing to explore and to pioneer and to adventure, is that we need guides along our way, guides who support our exploration, people in our lives that we check in with as we go to seek to live God's kingdom in this world. Children young and old need to go out and explore while at the same time have the comfort and confidence that they can come home. That's one of the reasons we meet as a church is that we would come together uh, because we've been out all week, hopefully. Not hiding, but living freely. This idea of being supportive of going out and also being welcomed as we come home is rooted in the kind hands of the one who supports us as we go out and welcomes us as we come home. The kind hands of the Lord. And this is the kingdom calling. It's the church in action. It also, uncoincidentally, is secure attachment theory. Three things you need is to be supported going out, to be welcome coming in, and kind hands who orchestrates that. Yes, it's God, and hopefully it's through godly people in our lives. I think um, the question I have for us, maybe this could be one where we share with one another. Is, is there a time in your life where you felt like you sheltered in? Where you hid from the world? And in this season, is there a calling to be sent out for the sake of the kingdom? For God's hope and healing? And then how can we as a church support you? It's a deep question. Worth considering. What do you think, Carrie? Is that like an introvert one or an extrovert one? <laughs> Do you want to process this with one another or do you want to sit and process it in your own mind? Each other? Claire Bear said it. Go. <laughs> the thing you want to process that takes management. 
Yeah, it's a great question. Where have you been afraid of the world and therefore kind of separated yourself from others? Maybe when there are opportunities to be with others. Or have you kind of, and there could be seasonal reasons for that. But yeah, like where have you, where have you or I have done that? Helpful, not helpful? Yeah. The Christian bubble, think about that. If, you're, if you've been around church for a while, there's always like the holy huddle, the Christian bubble. I'd rather have my Christian friends than know anybody else outside. That's like one way of that. To not, to not like spend time with others. Okay? Talk about that. It's a convicting question, no doubt. Thirty seconds. Taking out thirty seconds. Minute. Thirty. Ninety seconds. Okay, why don't you come in, baby? That way you're not left here on your own. You have the what? Oh, you're feeling sick? Okay. Okay, sweet. Okay, sweet. Okay, I love you, babe. Just let me know if you need anything. All right. Okay. Ways... That trust is breached, overprotection, overprotected tendencies. And I, and I understand this is a very layered conversation. Very layered conversation. 
I'll wait for that. Sweet. I mean, think about Mac. Do I now, like, hold Mac's hand everywhere we go? No, I, I probably will let him do the same thing, but maybe next time I'll make sure he gets to the field and his team is there to support his going. We, that's the key is we need guides in our life to support our exploration, and we need wisdom in this conversation because as Paul prayed, I pray that I keep asking God of Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord, glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation. Wisdom is required because there are influences out there that will try to hurt us young and old. And, and if overprotection is our first barrier to trust, this leads us to our second barrier to trust, which is no protection. No protection at all. A life without parameters. If, if Israel was too insular, again, there were some people who were, I believe, following the kingdom calling, uh, which is why you see a lot of like Gentile God-fears in the New Testament. But by and large, they were, they were insular. Uh, the Gentile world, by contrast, that Paul is trying to reach was too open-minded to a fault. Uh, they lived in a time where almost anything goes in the name of freedom. Uh, and the freedom of Ephesus lacked boundaries. It led to deep insecurities and in many places, chaos, uh, protest and chaos. And the principle is there exists a chaotic freedom that doesn't have structure or parameters. And then there exists a constructive freedom, which actually does have parameters and structure. Um, sometimes when we think of parameters, we can think of rules or, or guidelines, and that can feel restrictive for a lot of us. I'm, I'm a nonconformist, pretty much by nature, but I also recognize that parameters are definitely necessary. Um, we're not being caged by walls. True freedom, particularly the freedom that's depicted through Christ and the parameters that he sets in our lives is designed in a way to preserve our joys so that we don't fall into pits of destructive consequences, both individually as well as collectively. Because this isn't just an individual conversation, it's a collective conversation. So we don't fall or drown in the water of self-deception. Paul writes later it's in 2 Corinthians, the Lord is spirit, and where the spirit of the Lord is, there actually is freedom. But that freedom is a constructive freedom. They may not seem fun, the parameters or guidelines of God at the time, but it actually strengthens our faith, our trust, our confidence, our reliance. It strengthens our connections with one another and therefore builds in a foundation of lasting contentment, of connection and love. But no parameters, that's like a car driving in the mountains with no speed limit signs, no guardrails on the side, no little dotted lines for other cars and sharp turns with no warnings or sharp turns. It eventually leads to chaos. It's just a matter of time. And a great example of this is the sexual revolution of the 1960s and 70s that have profound implications for where we are today. Uh, the idea that free love can and almost uh, should, be, should exist and not be confined by the institution or the man or marriage. And when you think about some of the consequences, in the mid-1900s, the CDC, which is the Center of Disease and Control, in 1946 had two 
named sexually transmitted diseases. Then you look at the CDC today, and there's dozens and dozens of sexually transmitted diseases that all happen in this tide-turning moment. And, and political affiliations aside, and here's a moment where I just need to go off the cuff. When we're in here, sometimes we wear our political goggles, you know what I mean? And we talk about different things. You're like, okay, he's talking about sex, sexuality, marriage. That's definitely a conservative conversation. That's a red conversation. And then we, oh, we're talking about race. That's a blue, that's a, um, that's a blue conversation. Uh, race issues, blue. Okay, well, there's abortion, red. There's, okay, there's, oh, nationalism. That's a, that's a, that's a blue conversation. And it's like, dude, we got to take off those political goggles and just have kingdom conversations. Because today probably will feel a little red. And I don't, I don't like preaching red. I don't like preaching blue. I don't, you know. But in a couple weeks when we talk about race, it'll probably feel a little blue. You know, it's gonna, you're going to feel those feelings. And I'm just asking you to take these goggles off. Okay? You got me? All right. Political affiliation side, both divorce rates and abortions increase significantly after the sexual freedom of the 1960s and 70s. And who's to blame? Is it Woodstock? Jimi Hendrix? Hippies? Paul would say, no, it's the powers. It's the principalities, these spiritual forces that drive people and people groups to do things. Principalities that disguise sin as joy in order to confuse what is right and wrong. And that powers of that generation has formed our generation. The truth is that many of us believed or even believe, still believe that we should experiment with as many partners as possible. We believed it at one time or not. That's not an indictment at all, Jen. <laughs> no, no, I mean, as a belief, I, I mean, it's a belief I believe as a kid. It's truly. Pornography, we think is okay, even under the guise of like really good streaming stories. Do you watch Game of Thrones and all that stuff? I'm not trying to shame stories and all that, but it's alive and well. Modern slavery in the form of sex trafficking, which I know is not the only slavery alive today. I understand that there's kids working in sweatshops making most of the shirts that we wear too. But modern slavery exists in the form of sex trafficking, um, which we think is a harmless click away. And these powers are forming and deforming a generation, the next generation. And this is where I'm going to lean in, and I'm sure it'll go well. I'm sure I'll make some people mad. But in the last week, I feel like I've had like 12 or 13 conversations about this transgender conversation gender fluidity and transgender ideology, which is coupled with the larger LGBTQIAS2S+. And again, when I, when I bring these up, they're not the enemy. The principalities that undergird that, which is not human. Paul says it's not against flesh and blood, but it's against these heavenly forces or these falling forces in the heavenly realms. But I've had so many conversations with them. And it's not even conversations with people of a certain political leaning. It's like on both sides of the fence, as well as I know people from this yards and they have no sign. And it's from an immigrant friend I just made. It's from contractors I have in my house. It's from people in our church, people from other churches, and then just people by and large. I, I can't seem to escape this conversation. And I don't think I should. 
And it's something my kids are bringing up a ton as well through what they're watching and what's on streaming platforms. I'm not going to get into that. <sighs> so it's helpful to talk about it. It's helpful for a reason of this. It brings clarity. Because if you don't talk about it, you're like, hey, where do we stand with all this? Do we stand? Is there a standing? Here's what's unhelpful about having this conversation is it brings a sense of superiority. That whenever we talk about truth, we can feel like, an, we can feel like we're on the side of truth. And those people are not. When we talk about truth, we have to talk about it with a deep humility. Because the saving truth I'm talking about and these parameters I'm going to talk about is what you need just as much as anybody else. Somebody can amen that. They can't. They don't have to. Yeah, come on. Uh, conversations and questions about what's being taught and perhaps indoctrinated in schools. My friend of mine who lives up north, she told me that she was mandated to protect students who are questioning their sexuality or gender from their parents. That's a mandate now. Uh, what is media doing all this? How is it involved? Um, is there an agenda that's trying to get children to alter and malign their bodies before their brain is fully formed? All these things are questions that we have. And I just want to make it clear that LGBTQIA2S plus um, have experienced a lot of pain in this conversation historically. A lot of people talk about when you watch sermons about this, it's like there's this um, disclaimer that's a very complicated conversation. It is certainly complicated, but it's not complicated from the point of like what seems to be biblically clear about this. It's complicated because there's been a lot of historical pain where this community, community has, by and large in history, been marginalized and even forced into psychological reparative therapies. It's also very clear that there's something happening today where now kids are all being almost encouraged to enter into, unconcernedly, these different bodily therapies that we need to be aware of and speak to. I don't spend a lot of time with this, but everybody's been asking me about it. Questions come up, is this an injustice issue similar to the biblical issues of ethnocentrism, racism, nationalism, uh, uh, sexism along the lines of gender, classism? Uh, I think this one's different when it comes to the marginalization of that community because they're a community who is now in power. Um, there are always going to be propensities towards marginalizing other people, particularly when we talk about us and them. We need to put ourselves with them. As I speak about the following, am I provoking hate speech if I don't agree what's happening culturally? It appears that if you say anything contrary to the cultural narrative, it's scandalous socially. And I could say that, like, yeah, we are called to love all people, neighbors, friends, strangers, enemies alike. But also Jesus said, hey, if they don't like you, they didn't like me. He uses in stronger terms. If they hate you, they hated me. Is there an agenda? What is being taught in schools? Is it indoctrination? And to the latter, when it comes to the conversation of principalities, there's always an agenda. And that's what we need to think about is cultural principalities, these social systemic influences that didn't just form with this LGBT thing. It's like the whole sexual conversation that started years ago and started centuries ago. There will always be an agenda that will try to harm kids. And so I can't give a whole sermon on this, but I will now provide what I believe is the protective parameters 
end this conversation. Water's Edge has a traditional biblical view on sex, sexuality, and marriage. I don't know if you knew that. I've talked about this in the past, but it's just one of those things to remind us. And we love talking about this. We love everybody being welcomed. But biblical God-ordained marriage is designed for one man, one woman, for life. And, and like a fire in a fireplace, sex is a sacrament designed for the purpose of unity, creation, and devotion. And the safeguards of marital covenant. The marriage is like the safeguards. It's like the, the fireplace. And sex is the fire that exists safely in there. Without that, it can burn down a home. We believe that each person, each child, is fearfully and wonderfully made as they are. Created by God on purpose for a purpose. God creates boys. God creates girls. They're both so beautiful in God's design. And yet they're still different and distinct. Their biology does dictate that. And we believe that. That's how God creates us. That doesn't mean that like girls can't be engineers or wear baggy clothes or like sports or boys can't be into art or care. I mean, there are boys who are great elementary school teachers and there was a girl in my class who crushed me all the time in engineering. It's just true. Uh, but we do believe that God fearfully and wonderfully makes us in the womb as we are. We also believe that there's a lot of pain in this world and that each person deals with pain and that we want supports and guides to help walk them through that pain. We want to be this place where we can accept and welcome all people and I'll explain why that really matters at the end, I promise you that. That welcomes all walks in so that they can encounter a God who loves them no matter what they've decision they've made or change they've undergone. We, we can accept individuals without affirming every behavior as saved sinners ourselves. It, it's not easy. Oh, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard and unique. Uh, but truth loves both humility and standing. Uh, there's more that can be stated, but those are an introduction to the guidelines of our belief system. I also want to say alongside those guidelines that principalities that undergird this movement or any movement contrary to the Lord's will, they're designed to divide us. They're going to, the principalities that organize itself, not just in the world, but love to seep into the church, are designed to divide us and to villainize others, villainize one another, and confuse us. It's designed to confuse us. You actually can have values that are contrary to cultural narratives while at the same time loving others fully. You can. So many people are like, I, I, I don't know if I'm not, it's loving. I'm like, you can love people. I'll give you a great example. My daughter's not here right now, but she had this. There was a young lady who came to my daughter and said, dude, I have a crush on you. I want to be with you. And you know what Caitlin said? She said, I don't see you that way, but I would love to be friends. It's like the wisdom of children. I don't see you that way, and I would love to be friends. That's like such an amazing word. You know what I mean? It's like, oh, preach it, girl. And now she's sick, and she's going to miss it, but maybe it's good for her head. I don't see you that way, but I love to be friends. This is who God is, kind hands, who sees us differently than the way we see one another. I want to read uh, the last part of Ephesians. But because of his great love for us, 
God, who is rich in what? Mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we are dead in transgressions. It is by grace that you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. We didn't raise ourselves up. It's Christ who did it. In order that in the coming ages he might show us the incomparable riches of his grace, expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace that you've been saved, through faith. And this is not of yourselves. It's not of me. It's not of you. It's a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. We're not one that boasts. We're not superior. For we are God's handiwork. You are God's masterpiece. Created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which the Lord has prepared in advance for us to do. So this conversation matters, this idea of having kind hands in a world that lives by no protective boundaries and a tendency of the church to overprotect ourselves. There's kind hands that are here because if there's any movement that is contrary to kingdom movements, if there's any cultural influences, whether it be greed, whether it be separation of families, whether it be race, whether it be uh, race issues, patriotism, nationalism, and this whole movement now that we're experiencing through transgender ideology, etc. If it's against God's design, eventually it will erode itself. That's what sin does. And you're, seeing, you're starting to see and feel the effects of that. That doesn't mean we just watch it happen. We actually, it means something else completely. And what does it mean? Two words, kind hands. It means that in the next couple of years, there's going to be people coming in who maybe are hurting, have done certain things to their bodies, who feel like they were accepted by people but now have questions about their decision and now I've been completely criticized by certain people. And we need to be the hands of the feet of Jesus that welcome people no matter what they look like, no matter what's happened to their bodies, no matter what they think. No matter if they agree or disagree, we need to be the welcome hands in, in this coming age. That is what will happen. That is what's going to happen. We need to welcome others to the table. It's a world of hurt. It's a world of hurt that leads people to decisions, and there's a world of hurt the decisions that we have made. So we need to be welcoming, yes, standing in truth. More importantly, loving in Christ. Amen? So the way that we're going to remember that is we're going to take communion together. Communion celebrates the truth of Christ that he saves us, that we are his. We are children of God. Communion represents the grace of God, that none of us are better than the other, but in Christ, we are together. Amen? So the way that this is going to go down, I haven't thought this through. The wine, we do wine as a church, and we, there's grape there that's separate from the wine, so you can find that. Harper, I do the grape juice. Actually... I don't want to parent you. You should do the grape juice, okay? I feel awkward. I won't say anything else. Strike that from the notes. Take this around. Actually, I'm going to just let go so I can go give the bread. I'm going to hand out the bread. This bread was made by Jen Vahala. It's her sourdough. If you're gluten-free, I have an option for you, but just know that sourdough is really good for your uh, microbiome. Yeah. And we're going to take the bread and the wine together as we reflect. As you do that, I'm going to go over some next steps from today's message. A next step for all of us would be to re or reread Ephesians, uh, particularly Ephesians 1, 
the first 13 verses, there's an incredible exercise of understanding our identity in Christ. So as we dive into this book and have a lot of conversations, read Ephesians 1. Another thing I would love for you to do as we talk about